I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Stephen Wertheim, Senior Fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also a visiting fellow at Yale Law and author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Stephen, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks. So we're several weeks out from the withdrawal in Afghanistan, and uh, we've just passed the 20th anniversary of 9-11. On the one hand, there's a sense in the air that we're turning a corner, that we're at an inflection point, um, where post-9-11 policies are either coming to an end or being seriously reevaluated. And then on the other hand, below the surface of the kind of politics that most Americans consume, certainly seems to me like there's a lot that hasn't changed. Talk a little bit about the withdrawal, uh, all the politics that surrounded that, how you think that went, and assess where American foreign policy is at as we pass the 20-year mark since 9-11. I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan um, was predictably tragic in its immediate consequences. The Taliban taking over the country uh, does not bode good things for the people of Afghanistan. Of course, neither did the war. Um, and uh, of course, there was a lot of chaos that attended the evacuations, although I think in the end, uh, the United States was able to uh, evacuate uh, most uh, Americans and uh, many thousands of uh, vulnerable Afghans, and that's uh, quite a good thing. But um, I think there was no good way to lose a war to the Taliban. There was no plausible scenario in which somehow there was going to be a um, magnanimous, gentle Taliban that would have taken power uh, in a smooth way without um, causing great harm, uh, whether immediately or in the future, uh, from the point of view of uh, human rights uh, to people in Afghanistan. So, and if you think about the scenario that most commentators in the United States who were decrying the withdrawal, the one that they favored was something more like a so-called decent interval of one or two years in which the U.S.-backed Afghan national government would um, continue to fight, the U.S. would leave, and then it would fall to the Taliban just after one or two years of further fighting. Well, what does that actually mean? That means thousands of Afghan civilians and soldiers killed in that fighting, in that so-called decent interval. Um, I guess it would look better for the United States to some people, particularly people in the United States who could feel like there was some kind of separation between US actions and the results on the ground in Afghanistan, but that is not decent at all uh, for the people of Afghanistan. And uh, that scenario wouldn't have made things, in fact, better for the United States either. So, you know, I think the important thing is that the United States has finally, after 20 years, managed to uh, make a strategic adjustment. And that's a profound thing. We have actually had a foreign policy that has been unwilling to pull back virtually anywhere over the course of my adult lifetime, uh, but in a very big way, the president of the United States said, the choice really is to fight this war forever 
or to leave, and he chose to leave. And I think that is a certain kind of progress, even if the immediate uh, consequences are, of course, grim ones. Now, Biden has said that the withdrawal from Afghanistan isn't just about Afghanistan. He said it marks the end of an era, a post-9-11 era in which the United States undertakes what he called major military operations to remake other countries. And I think um, that might be correct. It, it might very well be, barring another large terrorist attack, which seems pretty unlikely, uh, that enough people in Washington have learned the lesson and enough people well beyond Washington that so-called nation-building or state-building wars uh, are very unlikely to produce positive outcomes for U.S. security or even for people on the ground. That said, in another sense, what Biden is doing is only continuing uh, a trend that began late in the George W. Bush administration, matured in the Biden, uh, sorry, the Obama-Biden administration, and continued through the Trump administration, which is to shift the U.S. war on terror to a low and no footprint mode of operations through aerial strikes and commando raids. And he's been pretty clear that he intends to continue that mode of waging the war on terror, though I think the administration is reevaluating uh, the U.S. military footprint, uh, including uh, through its counterterror operations. So in a sense, the war may have the war on terror may have become only more endless because it's now being put on a more sustainable basis. Right. So I want to see if we can dig into some of that policy inertia. Because on the one hand, you you know, you can kind of frame these debates about post-9-11 policies as argument one versus argument two. And it's just, you know, a, a balance of who's right and who's winning and, and so on. But it's also uh, there are institutional and bureaucratic uh, structures and incentives that affect this. And I think what we've seen is extreme measures taken in a time of vulnerability and panic kind of don't go away. They're very sticky. So we're still burdened with the AUMF. We still have people locked up in Guantanamo Bay that haven't even been charged with a crime. Immigration policies in ICE have been affected. The Patriot Act and mass surveillance, none of this stuff has really gone away. The TSA, you know, it's become a, basically a permanent tax on Americans' time and money. And uh, although it appears to have essentially zero utility in, in, in making air travel safer. Um, I do like the free baggies though. Yeah, those help. And even in, even in Afghanistan, where, I mean, you can argue, yes, Biden resisted the policy inertia, but we're still planning on being pretty active there, as you intimated just then. How, what do you think is the mechanism here that perpetuates these policies uh, beyond the, the surface level debate? What causes the inertia, the inability to adapt? Well, I do think we have a remarkably cloistered foreign policy community in Washington. Um, of course, we come into 9-11 with a backdrop of Congress not having issued a, a formal declaration of war since World War II, since 1942. So there's a longstanding deference of Congress to the so-called imperial presidency. And of course, the construction of what President Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, where we have a really fundamental problem of concentrated interests that have 
uh, a, a strong stake in the United States being permanently mobilized uh, for war or for deterrence all over the world uh, and diffuse what I think are diffuse interests of the American public in a more peaceful foreign policy that nevertheless are, because they're diffuse, very difficult to channel uh, into the halls of Congress uh, and into policymaking. So these are all long-range factors that are much more deeply rooted than 9-11, but 9-11 provided, if you like, the opportunity uh, for the uh, people in positions of power to, to lock in uh, new bureaucracies, uh, new wars, and new authorizations. The 2001 authorization for use of military force, as you mentioned, continues to be the only uh, authorization from Congress for U.S. actions as part of this metastasizing war on, on terror, uh, if you exclude uh, the 2002 authorization that was specifically for the war in Iraq, and that too has been cited expansively. Uh, so essentially, you've got Congress weighing in once, uh, passing this authorization with language so capacious, it's practically begging to be abused by presidents. Uh, and doing this just a week after 9-11, there wasn't even real certainty about who the enemy was at that point. I think 9-11, and, and particularly the U.S. reaction to it, has exposed for many Americans uh, the, the depth of uh, the inertia uh, in our uh, foreign policy-making establishment. And I also think the failure of foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, to adjust to the results that we were getting from the war on terror. And, you know, the war in Iraq, for example, became net unpopular pretty quickly, 2004-2005. The Taliban insurgency also formed uh, around the same time. Uh, the failure to adjust is, I think, a significant source of the so-called populist backlash against elites that's coincided with the uh, financial crash and the aftermath of that. And so I think there is, though, the, the reason I have some, some kind of um, optimism, I don't know if it's optimism, a little bit of hope is that somehow, in some way, over the course of this 20 years, changes have percolated up to uh, the highest levels of our politics. We just had two presidential candidates who both, I think, would have ended the war in Afghanistan, despite all the support for it in the U.S. foreign policy community over two decades, who both were decrying the practice of endless or forever wars. So somehow the American public has come to conclusions about first the war in Iraq, then the war in Afghanistan, that I think were outstripped by uh, the kind of debate there was in Washington. Uh, and it has exerted some influence. And that's why you see today somebody as close to the foreign policy establishment as Joe Biden. He got to the Senate in, what was that, 1973, uh, do something that um, bucks the blob, so to speak, uh, end this war in Afghanistan and declare that the very notion of using the U.S. military to engage in a liberal state-building project is to be rejected. 
Well, that kind of makes me want to ask about your theory of change. Do you think that the kind of substantive changes that you think we need to see to our post 9-11 foreign policies and kind of U.S. foreign policy in general will come from the bottom up like that? There's there's differences of, of, of opinion here. Some people think, you know, foreign policy is really an elite sport to really make a substantive change that is lasting. You've got to um, build a counter elite that can service politicians who want to pursue uh, a, a different route. Some people think it's going to be generational. You know, my, my colleague Trevor Thrall has done work on this. As soon as people that are of, um, you, you know, a similar age to you and I, and um, maybe a, a similar persuasion on these post 9-11 wars, uh, get into Congress, you know, that will uh, start to really mark the shift. Um, and of course, as you know, right now, that it's a kind of special time. Not only are these higher level national debates happening, but there is a kind of insurgent force which has become prominent in DC of so-called restrainers. So the restraint coalition, so to speak, is a thing where it wasn't before. How do you actually, I'm not asking you necessarily to predict, but what's your theory of change for how we actually get to something different? I think that when it comes to theories of change, there's no absolute answer. I certainly don't think that, you know, the key is the grassroots because the grassroots are difficult to mobilize for understandable reasons about distant foreign policy problems. Uh, and then exactly how do you get from there to policymaking? Um, nor do I think, you know, the answer is entirely just uh, more elites who think differently because we have uh, the problem of political incentives, uh, which is an enduring one. Uh, due to the so-called military-industrial complex. Uh, and I think we've seen, actually, that much of the change, the course corrections over the last 15 years have, uh, in fact, come from the American public. Um, I, I don't think Barack Obama would have beaten Hillary Clinton in 2008, but for Obama's opposition to the Iraq war at the time when it was launched compared to Clinton's support for the Iraq war. I really don't. And I think Donald Trump is only sort of imaginable as a president um, for a number of reasons relating to the, the war on terror. But, uh, you know, he was able to pass the commander in chief test with enough of the electorate to win, uh, in part because uh, he, you know, seemed like a truth teller when he blasted the Iraq war and other wars as a mistake. Um, it seemed, I think, to many voters that, well, if he has that insight, even if he's lying about his initial <laughs> stance on the Iraq war, uh, if he has that insight, then uh, some kind of change would be welcome from what we've been fed for a long time. So I think the answer somehow comes from an interaction um, of the, you know, if you will, top-down and, and bottom-up approaches. But I will be a little less boring than that. Right now, I think the main bottleneck is located in Washington. It is located in the elite, in think tanks, commentators, you know, people who can staff Congress, people who can staff administration. 
So, because if that part doesn't get right, then I don't think that the sentiment of the American public can be, in fact, channeled into policy, ultimately. And it also means it opens up the potential for a uh, counter-elite, if you will, that can win some of these arguments. And regardless of where exactly the public is on some of these issues, um, I don't think ordinary Americans are very well informed about the low and no footprint parts of the war on terror, for example. It opens up the possibility of having meaningful policy victories uh, on those issues as well. One thing I find interesting is that with reference to this kind of elite debate that's going on in D.C., I asked uh, Josh Schifferson about this a few episodes ago, but you know there was that article by Dan Dudney and, and John Eikenberry about the, the Quincy Coalition, as they call it, or the Restraint Coalition. And it's interesting that one of the, it's almost like they pointed out as a weakness that this coalition of people who all want a more restraint-oriented foreign policy have different domestic political opinions and agendas. And uh, they described that or, or sort of framed it as a, as a weakness or a potential problem. And then ironically, on the other side, folks like us tend to emphasize that as a, as a good thing, as a, a strength of the movement. How do you see this? I mean, there, there, is, there, are, there are definitely different agendas going on, and, but there are some unifying aspects to the coalition as well. Uh, talk a little bit about how you think that criticism lands from Dudney and Eikenberry and, and what you think of the, the overall kind of movement looks like right now. Well, the Dudney and Eikenberry piece was uh, rather odd. They, on the one hand, uh, make a point of saying that there is a restraint coalition made up of people with otherwise divergent political viewpoints, except on foreign policy. And then they, at various times, attribute uh, any position that might come from somebody in that coalition to the entire coalition to try to taint it. So it's a completely incoherent criticism. And um, I'm still trying to figure out how extremely intelligent people can um, arrive at the text uh, as it stands in the pages of survival. Nevertheless, I think clearly there is some um, confusion, I guess, over what it might mean to be in a restraint-oriented coalition. Um, and personally, I think it's one of the least compromising kinds of political coalitions there could possibly be, because my experience has been that um, people from whatever end of the political spectrum very much understand that they are cooperating in a, on a pragmatic basis with people with whom they otherwise disagree, but do align on the use of force and U.S. grand strategy, U.S. security commitments globally. And aligning on these issues and working together, as far as I can tell, requires no compromise with anybody's other beliefs. I personally have written about how I think U.S. military restraint should be coupled with, um, in some ways, more activism on issues like climate change. And others in that coalition disagree with me. 
and great. Uh, that's fine, but it really doesn't sort of affect the the work of U.S. military restraint to connect this agenda to other issues. Now, if if people disagree, that would be very interesting. But I, I haven't really seen somebody lay out lay out the the case. And in the absence of doing that, I kind of fail to see what the problem would be um, with operating in this kind of coalition. And in fact, I think all the controversy about it is quite revealing because there's something else too that's going on. There's a primacy coalition. There's a primacy coalition of avowed imperialists, uh, liberal internationalists, some human rights activists, people on the right, people on the far right, people on in the center, you know, people in the left, on the, on the left. Uh, there's a, at least as robust and diverse a coalition in favor of U.S. global military primacy. But that gets naturalized because we're just so used to it. That's the status quo. But that coalition has, you know, people with all kinds of differences who are not, you know, made to denounce uh, somebody else with whom they're in that coalition. And in fact, their coalition doesn't need to be very self-conscious because, again, it's the status quo. It's just how things are. So I hope that the conversation about the so-called restraint coalition will help us understand what the relationship is between people's broader politics and foreign policy. And if we view this in a, in a fair way, I think we'll just have to admit that, you know, foreign policy views do scramble uh, other ways in which people politically identify and affiliate. That's how it's always been. And if you if you don't like the agenda of U.S. military restraint, then sure, you shouldn't like the the restraint coalition because you think it's pushing the wrong agenda. But that's about the only uh, good objection to that coalition that I can that I can come up with. I want to ask you about a couple of the sort of broader ideas that you uh, explore in your book, you know, and, and with reference to this elite debate that we've been talking about and what the other side seems to be saying, one thing they have going for them is that they come up with these very simplistic notions about how the world works and therefore how U.S. foreign policy ought to work. So the kind of story was, as you put it in your book, you know, isolationism on the part of the United States brought us World War One and World War Two, and its opposite since then has prevented a third world war. And there's a kind of version of that with 9-11 as well, like um, the fight them over there so we're not fighting them over here type of uh, idea or some such version of that where the claim is basically that all of the bumbling violence, securitization and warfare that we've engaged in has somehow prevented another 9-11. These are pretty dubious claims on the merits, but they are compelling in their simplicity. And if you do need the American people behind you as, a, as an element in, in a battle like this, um, I suppose that's, that's an asset. But it's uh, also just a recipe for, you know, their version of those, those notions is just a recipe for constant militarism and a, and a demand for perpetual policing of the order. So uh, does restraint need better messaging? Or, uh, I mean, talk about how this, th this narrative developed and how we might inch our way towards a, a more constructive one. 
Yeah. So in, in my book, I mainly give an account of how the United States made a decision to become the dominant military power and project its power across the globe, which I argue happened quite suddenly in about 18 months after the fall of France to Nazi Germany in the middle of 1940 and the attack on Pearl Harbor that brought the United States formally into World War II. And it was precisely because, and only because, a set of people in the United States came to think that the United States should embark on global dominance, that they even thought to consider their political opponents at the time as isolationists. For most, what is still most of American history, um, this was not a term of much salience. It hardly anybody called their opponents, even uh, opponents of joining the League of Nations after World War I, isolationists. So this is a term that is has been overwhelmingly used as an epithet, even from the start, because I think we can agree that if anyone was an isolationist, it would be those who opposed U.S. entry into World War II and gathered in the America First Committee in 1940 and, and 41. And th those people argued that the United States should uh, prevent any attack on the Western Hemisphere. So it should have, uh, it should exercise political and military hegemony over an entire hemisphere. And then they had a range of views about how else the United States should engage globally, but most of them favored uh, trade, as much trade as, as could be gotten in a world of uh, diverse powers. Uh, many were sympathetic to international law and institutions. So the label isolationism, we would never think to, based on what they actually stood for and believed, and also how they described themselves by and large, we would never have thought to label them that way had they not been branded as such by their political opponents. And the reason why this was so important for their political opponents to do and so effective uh, is that it transformed what it meant to be uh, internationalist in America. Against isolationism, you could favor U.S. military dominance while thinking that it could somehow also transcend power politics and war. Both of those contradictory ideas are somehow antonyms of isolationism. And that's why this narrative has really stuck, because it's so utterly useful, uh, and you hear it so much today. So what does this mean for the cause of restraint? I'm not sure, in part because as a as an intellectual myself, I can't bring myself to, to unfairly label another group of people. I, I think that the, the main terms that uh, restrainers use, you know, primacy versus restraint, are not flattering in their connotations to restraint. Primacy sounds good. Restraint sounds like you're keeping yourself from doing something you want to do. Um, so maybe we're too pure for our own good. On the other hand, I also don't think that the emergence of isolationism as a as a category, as an epithet, 
was a kind of self-conscious act. It wasn't a conspiracy. It actually did reflect how people at the time um, saw things, how they feared that their opponents, um, they, they, it, it expressed uh, what they believed their opponents would lead the world toward. They thought that the logical conclusion of their opponents' arguments would be to leave the United States in some sense isolated in the world. Um, so to some degree, I think these things have to emerge organically uh, and can't just be engineered. So I don't spend too much time trying to come up with better, better branding uh, for for restraint, I think people are increasingly understanding the argument, and uh, and that's what's most important. I want you to tease out a little more this concept of internationalism. You make a good point in the book uh, that it's it's a term that's kind of been abused. Um, it's an idea; it has an intellectual tradition, and um, there's a difference between internationalism and the kind of internationalist armed supremacy that is often these days termed liberal internationalism. So how do you think about a version of internationalism that doesn't involve U.S. military hegemony and this sort of global cop role for the United States? It shouldn't be difficult to think about. It shouldn't be controversial. The term internationalism came into use in the late 19th century in the United States and elsewhere. And initially, the people using it were largely pacifists. To be an internationalist meant to want to somehow um, either transcend nationalism or recognize that nationalism needed to be limited and find a balance with internationalism. It, the term connoted the transcendence of the system of power politics and the war that came with it. And one can go through uh, a more complicated history of how the term evolved. But I think the outstanding change in the use of that concept came uh, in World War II, when internationalism was yoked to the project of armed dominance by a single power, the United States. You might say that internationalism turned into its opposite. That is how it seemed, uh, at least to some observers at the time. And since then, this particularly American post-World War II form of internationalism, um, yes, it, it connotes some efforts to cooperate with others, to lead a trading order, to make the world better in some way. But what seems to most fundamentally define internationalism in the American political debate is a commitment to the forward projection of U.S. military force. If the United States isn't number one militarily, uh, then it can't be internationalist and therefore it must be isolationist, which means that every other country aside from the United States, is isolationist. And yet also the same people will say that all these countries are advancing on us and eating our lunch and so forth. So it's quite, in, quite incoherent. Um, and 
I don't know exactly. Again, I'm I'm not going to engineer some kind of quick fix uh, to to change our entire political discourse. Um, but I think we could simply return to a um, mode of internationalism that shows how the United States can be engaged in the world through non-coercive means. And in fact, we can make the argument that America's propensity to coerce actually obstructs at this point meaningful interaction in the world. I think you can make a quite coherent argument when totalitarian powers were conquering territory and making a bid for uh, hegemony in Europe and Asia, that the choice was U.S. power or their power. And therefore, U.S. military dominance at that time was, given the circumstances, the best way to secure um, U.S.-style liberal terms of international intercourse. That is, a, I think, a coherent position. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think it becomes an incoherent position. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, what is really standing in the way of basically liberal modes of interaction and cooperation in the world? Well, the United States has sanctions on dozens of countries and entities, some sanctions that target entire populations and really make no sense for our national security or for anything else. Take Cuba or take Iran. Uh, and so I think we've got to understand, we've got to apply the critique that American internationalists from the 19th century and the early 20th century would have applied to us and say, if we want to engage in the world in a meaningful way, in a constructive way, and not obstruct people interacting, do we actually benefit from being so committed militarily and from using economic coercion as much as we do? One of the things I worry about is... Uh when the debate changes a little bit right now in particular because of the anniversary of 9-11 and the withdrawal from afghanistan you know basically the post 9-11 policies are uh, restraint voices kind of ha have a leg up uh in that debate just because it's been 20 years many people have seen the uh, futility of the wars that we've engaged in the expense of all this etc but eventually something will come along uh, that will kind of take the air out of this push. Um, and there's a lot of threat inflation going on about China, but when we do face some kind of situation uh, that seems to uh, uh, favor the primacists or the liberal internationalists, those who uh, want to demonstrate a, a kind of uh, aggressive militarist U.S. foreign policy, you know, they kind of have a leg up on in that discussion. And, and so... How do you how do you see the debate going forward um, when it's not such an easy slam dunk case as uh, post 9-11 foreign policies have been a disaster? 
I share your worry. And I think as long as there is wind at the backs of those who favor U.S. military restraint, uh, we have to press the advantage uh, as far as we can press it um, because conditions may well change. And I think specifically what I worry about going forward is that it will seem to enough people that by getting out of Afghanistan, um, by they may think getting out of Iraq, though we still have have thousands of uh, troops on the ground uh, there, uh, also troops in Syria. Nevertheless, by making significant adjustments relative to the uh, massive and lethal overcommitment of the United States after 9-11, we can, in fact, turn the page. Uh, major changes have been made. There aren't really wars going on. Who really cares if we're sanctioning Iranians or Cubans, etc.? And let's pivot now to China or the combination of China and Russia, um, which are both a more serious threat, you might say, than states in the Middle East, uh, are ideologically different, pose some legitimate challenges that we need to contend with, and don't raise the high risk of warfare, of large-scale warfare. Few people think that you know we're about to go to war with China or Russia. I don't think that. But I am worried about the commitments we've already made and where we'll end up in 10, 20 years. So as we move to a lower cost, less visible footprint in the Middle East, we do seem to be gearing up for an era of so-called great power competition or perhaps a Cold War with China or something that resembles the degree of enmity of the original Cold War, if it's not quite meeting whatever your, your definition of Cold War is. And that will seem like enough of an adjustment to people. And it does scramble some of the political battle lines uh, that exist over you know, getting the United States out of large Middle East interventions. So I worry about the United States applying the same indiscipline it's demonstrated in the greater Middle East in the last two decades to relations of greater consequence with China. Uh, and um, I, I do worry that that will be a successful move for those who uh, want to preserve America's outsized role in the world. And it will also be short-sighted uh, by those who think that an intense security competition with China will allow the United States to really focus and you know get out of the Middle East and perhaps even draw it down in Europe. Because over the long term, if China does indeed continue to rise, just look at the first Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union engaged in uh, interventions across the global South. Uh, we need only to look at the Korean War and the Vietnam War from from our own experience. Stephen Wertheim, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you.